welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. My name is John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we'll be looking at Minute 71. Begins with the Nostromo floating through space and ends with Dallas dealing with the fact that his chances don't compute. Thanks a lot, Mother. So uh, it's a new week, and we're joined uh, this week by Marlon West, co-head of effects animation at Disney Animation Studios. How you doing, Marlon? Hey, I'm doing really well. I'm excited to be here with you gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Well, we always ask our guests, um, you know, whether they can remember the first time they saw Alien, and, and uh, if so, what sort of effect it had. I remember it well, and um, I saw Alien uh, opening night, Friday night, 1979, when it came out in St. Louis, where I grew up, at the then Werenberg Theaters on, uh, in Creve Corps. Drove there at, I think, age 18, 18, 19, with some, with some buddies of mine after seeing the really riveting kind of commercials that were the uh, logo would write itself on, which actually is based on the title credits as well. And um, really blown away by it. One of the moments I do really remember, though, was when the um, alien burst out of John Hurt's chest, I would say a quarter of the audience left. Um, I think in 1979, a movie coming out of a relatively major studio um, with uh, with a cast of real actors, like didn't have violence that shocking commonly. And uh, I, I think it was more than a lot of folks signed up for. I remember it. I remember it well, the, the joint emptying by about a by about a quarter to a third of the folks when that happened. You know, when I saw it, I was so close to the screen because it was so crowded. I don't think I have any idea whether anybody got up and left that screening. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting kind of, uh, kind of, kind of, kind of in the back of the theater in, in, in the middle, and it, it was a pretty crowded theater. I think people were really excited for the, for that film. Um, I, you know, it's been a while. I, I meant to actually go back and look at some of the commercials that aired because I do really, really remember the whole like in space, no one can hear you scream type thing. And people were pretty, at least people I knew, uh, were really, really fired up for it. And, and, and myself included, I, I think a lot of folks got more than they bargained for. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, I think people thought it was gonna be a cool science fiction monster film and it is actually um, that on, on steroids. Yeah, I remember the trailers first started out with a teaser that just showed the egg cracking. But then I remember right before the movie came out, they had they had one trailer that was a really fast, just montage of images that went so fast you really couldn't quite tell what you were looking at, but it was really scary. Yeah, yeah kind of loosely based on that last, you know, rush to the escape pod, you know, where things are like super fast cut, you know? Yeah, yeah. What, did you did you go back and see it at the theater again when uh, after you first saw it? Were you one of those kind of people that went back to the movies more than more than once? I saw it. I, I don't know if I saw it um, first run, but I did see it back. You know, you know, I, I'm of an age where they had the you know repertory theaters where you kind of you know they first showed second run films very often. So I saw Alien projected um, along with uh, you know I, I think the the Road Warrior it was coupled with quite a bit. I don't know, maybe half a dozen times in theaters. And I've watched it, you know, on, on DVD and, and Blu-ray uh, many times over the years, in whole or in part. That's a pretty good double bill with the Road Warrior. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was, it was a good one. I saw, I saw the Road Warrior and Blade Runner together on a double bill. And man, like, don't watch the Road Warrior first. 
Because <laughs> Blade Runner then seems like it's even five times slower than it really is. Well, that just the Blade Runner just beat the Valium to your uh, like cocaine high of yeah. Red Warrior. Yeah, I would think. I, I, I'm pretty sure I saw that double bill a couple of times too. I have to say. Let's. Uh, if it's all right, we'll just kind of get into the minute and start talking about how this unfolds. Yeah. I was looking at that shot of the ship and the stars. And one of the things that's interesting is the whole screen is full of stars, and then once the ship passes camera, only the bottom half of the screen has stars in it, and everything else is black. Wow. I mean, so I wonder, was that, yeah. is that because they did some kind of a practical effect, or did they backwind the camera? I don't know. Do you have any, any did you even notice that? You know what, I have to say, even just, just getting ready to watch this, I hadn't noticed that. I, I was really struck by the first time I saw it, you know, and I watched it again, you know, in preparation for actually sitting down and, and chatting with you all. And, and, and my, my overall reaction to the film was everything that I really dug about it. I liked it. still really holds up. And some of the things that I was like, ah, that kind of bugged me, still bugged me. And it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's so consistent in, in, in my mind of like things that I think are really, really great about it. But the thing about that shot, which is one reason I guess I didn't notice the stars, is just how the Nostromo doesn't look like a spaceship. It looks like a floating city and it looks like an oil refinery floating through space. And I just remember like the first time I saw that ship kind of like on screen, you know, and it doesn't have all the cues of a, of a science fiction kind of spaceship did, you know, up until that point, it just, it just felt really, really, really special, you know, like, and, and it felt, serious and that thing felt felt huge and you know you when you, you're told there's only like 700 like seven people on it you're like it, it just suggested that this thing is has a lot of usage that, that has nothing to do with the story that i'm I, i'm you know i'm privy to there's so much going on is this thing you know is, is it full of ore is it full of all these minerals what what is all this gear and you and you know when they take off to go to the planet you know, they, they take off from what looks like about an eighth of this vast ship that they're on. So, but yeah, I, I didn't notice the the, the, star, the stars. I uh, I almost, I, I'm curious as to whether that was, you know, almost like a matting problem. I, I, but uh, yeah, that's what I wondered. I thought it maybe is some kind of a matting problem. Maybe they did an, an actually in-camera effect and, and maybe... The bottom half was photographed as a star field and the upper part was, I don't know, fake yeah. or, you know, just black with dots in it or something. But I, I still am not sure. I'm sure if maybe if anybody knows, they, yeah, can, uh, I, they can fill I, us I'm in. I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, I did that, the, 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 my big takeaway from that, that shot was just like, what a unique kind of image, like a kind of audacious spaceship that was, at least, you know, to me at the time. Yeah, and they really invite us to look at it because it has that that sense of of all the stuff about it that we don't know, and you really feel like you're kind of just plunked into this this reality that that they're not yeah. going to explain to us. There's like a there, 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 there's like a ton of story. Um, you know, part of it is the the acting chops of this ensemble group of folks, who most of which were unknown to me when I saw the film. Um, I, I, I'd seen Yafit Kodo as a James Bond villain before that. Um, I'd, I'd seen John Hurt uh, on uh, the I Claudius, but everyone else, everyone else was brand new to me. 
and there's a strong group of group of actors bringing their a game there's no like no camp to this thing at all and like this the shot we're talking about is just symptomatic of that you know it's like it drops you into some to a world with like a with a, with a vast history as far as i'm concerned uh and you know and, and you you're privy to this part of it yeah, so uh, one of the things I was going to point out about this uh, this sh- this shot is kind of another uh, establishing or reestablishing shot like we've had earlier in the film where we have a sequence come to an end, we break for a moment, get the effect shot of the Nostromo, sort of reminding the audience where we are, giving mm-hmm. us a moment to breathe. In a movie that's so unconventional in so many ways as far as a genre movie as it is, there's a lot of tidiness to how it's constructed and, and you get these nice, neat moments and yeah. again, it's on a it's on a minute break, Marlon. We've talked about this a lot on the show. Uh, we suspect that Ridley Scott's commercial background is sort of had engineered him towards cutting movie this way. He really is very neat on his cuts, and he d- comes in often at thirty second or one minute intervals uh, for breaks. I hadn't really noticed that at, watching the film over the years, but watching it in these minute long clips that you all sent me, it seems like very very true that everything is really 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 neat and you know this sequence where we're actually talking about in this minute you know contains this entire exchange almost between dallas and mother you know and also manages to let you know that this corporation maybe that they work for is not what you but you think it is i've got a lot of questions about this scene what the information dallas is or isn't getting and why this scene is presented this way i've always had a very specific reading of this and that was just basically that we we're we're taking a moment for dallas who is somewhat of a heroic character to us he's volunteering to now take this this plunge into danger for the crew i've always taken this as his uh he finds out he's screwed he's basically finding out this is a suicide mission i'm gonna have to do it anyway which i think is a perfectly good reading for the scene but as i watch it over and over again in a one minute uh chunk I start to wonder if there's not a lot more that you can read into this. And I think you kind of hinted at it, Marlon, uh, that we're, we're learning about the company here a little bit because I have a problem now. I've never thought about this before, but I kind of have a problem with the mother's response here. I don't think there's any way that she can't give him something. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, mother, mother is clearly hedging watching this scene. And I, I think um, it's not that, that Dallas is reacting to a really bad odds that mother has spit out. She's reacting to her unwillingness to actually give him. She says it does not compute. And, um, you know, maybe it's because I've seen Alien so many times and I've seen other sequels where you know that this is not a great company. And, and even in Blade Runner, Wrigley Scott continues with this notion that the world is actually being run by by companies and organizations, not governments. And it starts right here in this scene with Mother, I think. It also gives us this nice bookend because the last time he was trying to get answers from Mother, uh, he he didn't do particularly well. Uh, he even asked her something that was kind of, what's the story, Mother? You know, you had this sense where he was going in, going in to try to get information. And I remember reading somewhere that Roman Polanski was saying that he always uses a location twice because he always feels like when you go back to a location, a location can stay the same, but the character in it, you can always sort of ask yourself, how is this different than the last time the character was in there, you know? And certainly this is 
Dallas really trying to get answers, whereas before he went in just kind of clueless and was just kind of getting getting whatever the company gave him, and he sort of took it at face value. Now he's going in there way in over his head, and he's not getting any help at all. He's not getting any help. And, you know, if, if I can digress just for a moment about even about this kind of like you know, cranial location that Dallas is in here. Um, another thing about this, the, the production design of this film that I just think holds up so well is how much some of this film looks like it's in the future and it's super modern, like this set and in, 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 you know, in the pod where they leave to go out to explore. But then there's the bowels of the ship where, where, where uh, Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton work and there's steam vents and water dripping and, you know, and it's like these, this dichotomy and this, this thing is so big that there's areas in it that are like, they, they look like they're from like V. Traven's death ship. And there's other things that are like, you know, super, super modern. And uh, I, that's one thing I really think that struck me about the movie when I first saw it. And, uh, and I think really holds up now because, you know, you, you can go to the shiniest building with the, you know, the, the most modern conveniences. And if you go into a storage room or if you go down to the sub basement, it, it's, it's, it's not going to hold up that, that modernity at all. And, you know, this scene with uh, where, where mother resides it, it is one of the more like modern looking places of that ship. Yeah, but you're right that you said cranial and I never really thought about that. Yeah, he's literally inside the brain of the ship and it's shaped like a brain, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it looks like you're you're, you're like in, you know inside of a inside of a skull, you know, and and you know there's lights blinking on and you know off and on all around you, you know. It, you know, it's funny. You know, in a film that came out in 1979, you know, it, it, it suggests that there's computing. You know, there's several monitors in there other than the one he's looking at. There's com- there's lights blinking that suggest computing going on. You know, from an era where computers were still huge, and I'm probably if they were doing a big job, like you know, managing a floating city, uh, it would have to be huge. It'd have to be a big giant brain, and there'd be lights blinking on, off and on everywhere. The other thing too, I, I think, it's kind of amusing about the, the, you know, it's like it, it's set in the future, but the you know, when when mother responds, you still get these kind of like keyboard stroke sound effects. You know, like it doesn't just come up. It doesn't just come up silently. There's no voice communication going back and forth like Hal in 2001. Yeah, yeah you, she could talk or it could just come up on the screen as a complete, form, you know, formed sentence. But there is something very um, stress inducing about watching a message kind of like be pecked out. And especially if it's not good news, like what Dallas is getting. Yeah, I was going to uh, just go back, Mitch, a second. You you were talking about this dichotomy of the, the two scenes. You get the earlier scene with Dallas going into Mother, finding out what it was that woke them up. And now we're back again for the second moment. And um, things are very dire. The stakes are very high. And uh, if you'll remember, in that earlier scene, he he's very casual right away with Mother. Remember, he goes in with the old cup of coffee. Right, uh, and sits down and just types up what's the story mother and you know we don't get her answer or anything but he's just very casual with mother at first and in this case we jump right in and uh he's asking very specific questions right and you assume that i don't know we to assume that he's just entered a bunch of information like giving her the idea of the plan right 
And he's asking her these very specific uh, uh, questions, and he's getting the same answer, does not compute, does not compute. And then he resorts at the end to being much more casual, much more personal. Like if you were having a meeting with someone, say it's you know some financial meeting and you're passing f- back and forth figures and not getting very good answers, and then you look that guy in the eye and said, am I, am I screwed here? He's hoping, I think he's hoping to resort back to that casual relationship. He's not getting it. I, you know, we don't, she just comes back. Sorry. We're not, it's not like that between you and me, Dallas. Sorry. I don't know why you thought I was going to like, does not compute. Doesn't just does not compute. It's all you're getting. cold as ice. That's all you're getting. It does not compute. So I think it's interesting to compare the two. I, I guess that leads me to another question. And we've talked about this a little bit about Ash's relationship to mother. Um, we know that he has access to mother. We kind of wonder at, at their level of, of contact. Uh, we've talked about like Bluetooth connection between them and so on. Is Ash aware of this conversation Dallas is having right now? Is mother telling Ash about this conversation right now? That That's very interesting. I, you know, I, I, I've always kind of assumed someone had to actually be, you know, sitting in front of mother, getting this, you know, at, at that keypad to really access her. But, you know, yeah, who knows about the connections between, you know, the wireless connections between mother and, and Ash. You know, as, as a viewer, you know, Matt, Ash has yet to reveal himself um, truly. But, um, you, you, you know, you realize he's, you know, he's a robot and he's in on it in a way that none of these other characters, you know, there's an earlier scene where uh, Sigourney Weaver and Tom Scarab are talking and, you know, he's like, oh, I had a guy I've made six runs with or three runs with. And, you know, he's suddenly replaced with, with Ash. You know, I, you know, I don't trust him. I don't trust anybody either, you know, but um, Dallas is trying to play it cool. But, you know, he, he has a guy on his midst that he doesn't trust. Well, there's there's some things, you know, every once in a while, Marlon, we get into some of the uh, sort of extra textual stuff that takes place in earlier drafts of the script or in the novelization and so on. Uh-huh. And there is there is more stuff that would have taken place prior to this about, you know, in the illustrated story, for instance, in the novelization where uh, he, Dallas expresses even more distrust or even has a conversation. Uh, right. Dallas is not happy, for instance, that Ash didn't know that the chestburster was inside Kane. He doesn't understand how he couldn't know. It's obviously very suspicious. Ash, of course, has a, a neat answer. But I think Dallas here, too, I think he's sort of slumping at the shoulders with this, like, does not compute answer because I think he's starting to see that the story isn't being given to him for a good reason. I think he suspects Ash is behind yeah. this to a certain extent. You know, we'll find out as the minutes progress how much how active Ash is in the plan to trap the alien. But I feel like, and it's easy to read it into the scene knowing what we know. But I feel like maybe Dallas is a little suspicious of Ash and thinks that this is a bit of a conspiracy. This film is, you know, overtly like a science fiction, you know, monster in the house movie, haunted house, dark, you know, dark rainy night film. But this scene. You know, it's, it's, it's the first time it really reveals itself as being like a also a conspiracy film that there's, you know, more going on. There's a there's another bigger and maybe more insidious monster than this alien. You know, this monster who will you know wake these people up and send them on this journey and, and allow them to be um, hosts for this this weapon or this this curiosity that this company wants. And this is the first time you really get a, a hint of what they're what they're up against. And this is the first time I ever saw Tom Skerritt as as an actor. And you know he's playing a role that in, in in other movies would be the hero role, 
the captain that everybody rallies behind and he plays it as so cool and collected and almost kind of um in this kind of beat down and dogged manner where he's done this a whole bunch of times and he's a working stiff just like everybody else you know he, he says so relative little just you know in both dialogue and and his expressions and just the way he puts his hand fingers under his hair in frustration when uh, mother says it does not compute, he doesn't slam his fist down. It, it, it's such a an adult and really cool performance by Tom Skerritt in this mo- in this moment and throughout these um, these next four moments we'll be talking about together. Yeah, it really is. You, I think calling this an adult horror story is is really true. Everybody behaves like normal grownups probably would. Yeah, I mean, with with, with very few exceptions, people behave like real people and not characters in a movie. You know, I, I, I remember reading the, the the illustrated alien novelization like when it came out, I thought it was great. because I loved the movie so much. I thought that thing was illustrated really well. And um, I never read the novelization, but, you know, there, there's all this understated kind of conversation between Dallas and Ripley that, you know, doesn't perk up to romance. It, it, it seems a little bit more than just work-a-day professionalism. Um, it, it, it doesn't even comp to being real friendship, but um, in earlier moments and in, in, in you know in its next few moments to come, you can see that Ripley feels a, a, a lot more invested than, than everyone else. Yeah, I think to me, yeah, I, think, I, I think that's really true. We'll yeah. definitely be talking about that a little bit more as the week goes on, for sure. Yeah, indeed, by all means. So, from this static shot, as this with this slow move in on Dallas, we then cut to this pullback, and we don't get the whole end of it. We just have it a very abrupt cut. the The airlock door slams shut. The camera starts to move back, and then we're out of this minute. But um, yes. But again, I just think it's interesting that that he goes from stasis to a very active shot, which we can talk about a little bit more when we get to the next minute. Yeah, by all means. Well, let's just move on to it then. If we, unless you have yeah. something else, Marlon. No, yeah, we we can move right on, gents. All right. Hey, is there uh, Marlon? Is there anywhere where the listeners can find you on the internet? Are you on Twitter or anything? You know, I'm up on the I'm up on the Facebooks. As I like to call it, it sounds like a middle-aged dude. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not on Twitter, um, but yeah. All right. And, and uh, I, I got. I, I've got a pretty low bar of, of, of Facebook friendship. Uh, people <laughs> want to write me a note and say what, well, yeah, why they want to connect. Uh, you know, I'm also on LinkedIn. I can be, you know, spoken to there. <laughs> out. So cool. yeah, by all means. Well, we'll have to make sure and get you in the uh, in our listeners group on Facebook. That's the best place to you know make friends oh, yeah. there and talk specifically about alien so all right cool. well yeah people visit us there you can go to facebook uh the alien minute listener society there um of course we you can uh, find episodes and download episodes at alienminute.com you can subscribe to us on itunes stitcher or google play feel free to head over to t public and grab some t-shirts mugs uh laptop covers they got all kinds of stuff over there these days uh, with our logos and different artwork that we put up there And uh, we'll uh, see you tomorrow for minute number 72. Cool. Looking forward to it.